Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Dervla McTiernan. Dervla is a lawyer who moved to Australia from Ireland following the global financial crisis and became a successful crime writer. Her first novel, featuring Detective Cormac Riley, is the international bestseller, The Ruin. And in today's Great Conversation, she'll be discussing her latest Cormac Riley thriller, The Scholar. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. And each week we feature an Australian, or an Australian-Irish, author exploring their latest work. Now, the Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of these discussions, catch the bits that don't make it to air, and get more into the books that you love. Now, I always want to get the word out to more book lovers, so please share this with your friends. Mention it to someone in a bookstore as you're looking at books together, and why not continue the discussion together? When you hit subscribe, you get a great new episode every week, and you'll have a friend to discuss books with. As the scholar begins, there's been a hit and run outside Galway University, and a young woman is dead. Cormac Riley's partner, Dr. Emma Sweeney, has discovered the body, but calling Cormac first leads to a world of trouble as the investigation is threatened by their personal involvement. When an ID card on the body shows the victim to be a billionaire heiress, it's quickly apparent that this is more than a simple accidental death. Join me as we get into Darylla McTiernan's new thriller, The Scholar. I'm joined on the line by Darylla McTiernan. Dervla is a lawyer turned crime writer. She's originally from County Cork in Ireland, and now she calls Western Australia home. The Scholar is Dervla's second outing for Detective Cormac Riley, following 2018's The Ruin. So, Dervla, welcome to Final Draft. Thank you very much for having me. Very happy to be here. I'm excited. I want to tell people a little bit about The Scholar, and uh, I'm going to acknowledge, before we even start, that any mystery needs a spoiler and in a mystery like this that sort of twists and turns has um I, I really without giving spoilers i feel comfortable talking about the first two paragraphs of the first page <laughs> without giving anything yeah it's a really hard one to talk about really hard um without giving everything away you kind of have to skip your way through the novel i found i've actually i started writing questions and realized even just the the nature of the question would give something away so i just took the people's names out of it yeah um, but let's i'm, I, I'm going to introduce the scholar. So there's been a hit and run outside Galway University and a young woman is dead. Cormac Riley's partner, Dr. Emma Sweeney, discovers the body. But calling Cormac first leads to a world of trouble as the investigation is threatened by their personal involvement. When an ID card on the body shows the victim to be a billionaire heiress, it's quickly apparent this is more than a simple accidental death. Uh, There is so much obfuscation in just that description there, but let's... (laughs) Let's get down to brass tacks. Say I'm a criminal. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But say I'm a criminal. What do I need to know about Detective Cormac Riley before I consider committing a crime in Galway? <laughs> just don't do it. Don't <laughs> do it. Um, he, he is, he's just, he's smart and he's, you know, the word that's leaping to mind, which sounds terribly boring, is dogged, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, he's not, he's not dull, but he is professional and mm-hmm. clever and experienced. So he doesn't get distracted by, you know, rubbish. He doesn't get distracted by inter-office politics and that sort of thing. He has something in front of him and he's going to keep going until he gets to the end. That is just the way he's always worked. It struck me as I read that 
Cormac's, he's a bit of a white hat without being a white hat. There are a couple of really little subtle nods to the fact that he's actually quite a handsome man. He's quite tall. Um, mm. That He's got a presence about him. He he seems kind of incorruptible. There is there is something of the square-jawed hero about him. Yeah. And yeah. yet it's never bashed over your head, so it really doesn't jump out at you. It's just a, a presence. Well, I'm glad it's not it's not bashed over your head, but I... I definitely set out with that in mind. You know, Cormac, Cormac's had it really easy and he doesn't know it. Hmm. You know, he is good looking. He was good at sport in school. You know, he's, he was easily and well liked. And then he went and he chose a profession that really suits him. You know, being a policeman is absolutely the right job for him. It suits his skills. He's good at it and he's done well. But life, all the cards have kind of gone his way up until 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 I got involved in his life. And then suddenly things are going to get a lot more complicated. You know, he will not be presented with simple black and white answers Mm. where he can just do a great job and go home and and pat himself on the back. You know, Mm. he is going to be forced into a series of situations where he has to choose a compromise where there is no good answer. And I'm really interested to see what happens when you put a genuinely decent person in those circumstances and they are forced to make those compromise decisions, how do they then move forward when they have a new vision of themselves as a result? You know, how do they find a way to look at themselves and make peace with their decisions and still be that good person going forward? Mm-hmm. So in The Ruin, I kind of feel like I put him in that position. And then in The Scholar, it's that bit more personal. Um, so that's, that's why, for me, it's interesting that Cormac is a decent guy because I want to see what happens to decent people in really difficult circumstances. Yeah, well, the hit and run presents Cormac with a conflict. He wants to protect his partner, uh, Emma. And, and I keep saying partner, um, but not his, not in, in the sense of a, a police officer. This is his romantic partner. But he also wants to maintain that meticulous observ- observation of procedure, the collection of evidence. I really noticed that thread throughout the book, which is which is fascinating uh, the way that so much can hinge not on right and wrong, but on whether it was properly documented and bagged. Yeah. But, but what I'm most interested here for Cormac is how procedure balances against humanity in these circumstances. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I haven't thought about it quite like that. And yet that is probably the core of it, you know. At the end of the day, everything comes down to relationships mm. and how you work with people. I mean, in every job in the world, whether you're a policeman or whatever you're doing, um, we all know sometimes relationships can make things run very smoothly or can make things extraordinarily difficult. Mm. And one of the things I'm interested in the, in the scholar is sort of that fundamental truth is very easily corrupted. You know, when we rely on relationships and we rely on favours and we rely on the person we want to phone picking up the phone for, you know, phone to a phone call from us and then doing the thing we want them to do. That's necessary for good work, but it's also the thing that can lead down a very dark path. So for me, it's kind of interesting to see show show Cormac in a way using those relationships and using that interaction in a in a positive way, but also showing the flip side of it. Now, within the narrative of the scholar, you switch between points of view of characters, and even then within chapters. So the chapters are actually organised by days of the investigation, which is actually a really fantastic way of driving something like this forward. Now, the effect of this switch of point of view, I found, is to both raise and extinguish the reader's uh, attempts at speculation. We travel from police officers to potential suspects to witnesses, 
it also weaves a tighter web, though, around the, the mystery. We hear our suspects absolve themselves. I, I came up with theories, and then on the next page, you would actually just take me to the person who had a theory about and they'd be like, oh, well, I know I didn't do it because here I am inside my own head thinking about how I didn't do it. <laughs> Why, why, why did you, why did you land on this particular shifting of perspective to build your oh, narrative? Wow, Andrew, I wish it was that deliberate. I'm <laughs> much more intelligent than I am. Well, many, um, many narratives will stick with uh, the the heroic protagonist point of view, and you will get the clues as as they get them. But here, you really muck around with our heads in that way. Yeah, you know, I think I find. I like to get close to the crime with the people who are directly impacted by it because I want that emotional resonance. I I think, um, God, there's this thing I have written, hand-scribbled on a piece of paper and stuck to my notice board in my study, and I got it, I'd love to say, from the original Aristotle, but I think I got it from a TED Talk. But anyway, it says the basis of story is these three words. Um, Pity, um, pity, oh, what is this? Pity, fear, catharsis. That's what it is. So from, pity for me means empathy. I want you to feel something for my characters. And for me, the most important people to feel for are the people who are impacted by the crime. If I can get you to feel something for the characters, then it's easier to have you fear for them. And at that point, you're, you're involved. You know, you're caught up in the story and then I can resolve it and it can be satisfying for a reader. So I need to get up close. If I just stay in the detective's head all the way through, then it's an interesting intellectual puzzle. And to the degree I can make it about his personal life and I can show elements of his personal life, well, you can be to some degree engaged. Mm. And those books can be very satisfying in their own way. But I love the books where I am feeling everything on the page and and the characters are people I know. You know, by the time I'm halfway through, I feel like I know them. And that's what I'm trying for. So to get you there, I need to show you points of view for people who are closer Mm. to the crime. I mean, those single point of view or the, the protagonist-led type of mysteries offer this incredibly illusory satisfaction because we have the crime built up as, as the goalpost and then when it's solved, we, we walk away, we're satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> they, we got the bad guy. But it's, yeah. a, it's a Pyrrhic victory because, of course, as you reveal in, in The Scholar, the victim is not simply the the poor woman who was killed at the beginning of the book. And we, mm. we find other victims as we come along. I actually found in uh, Name Redacted for Spoilers family <laughs> situation. Um, yeah. y- you'll know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, in, in, in this family situation, I, I saw reverberations of the 2008 economic downturn that hit the whole world. I know mm. in Ireland it hit particularly hard. And I wondered the way the way that was woven into the narrative and the way it it compelled behaviors that had other effects. Do yeah. you do you feel events like this will they're going to continue to show us effects long term? They're going to play out in literature, in art, as well as within society um, through generations. I think without question. I think without question. I mean, when the the crash hit in Ireland, it hit so hard and so quickly and so brutally. I mean, there was just no one who wasn't affected. I mean, people, anybody who had bought their house within the last 10 years, it was probably worth half of what they paid for it. Um, you probably lost your job. If you kept your job, you probably got a 30% pay cut. Taxes went up. There was no market for selling any kind of house. You could just forget about that. And bankruptcy in Ireland at, at the time, I think, was 12 years. So 
there was no way out for a lot of people. There were a lot of suicides, multiple suicides, people who had lost everything and felt they couldn't find another way forward. And and the the pain that that caused is still felt. I mean, first of all, there are people still caught in those economic traps. Mm. You know, in the two-bed apartment, they bought an hour and a half commute from their work, um, which is now still underwater by about €200,000. And, you know, now they have kids and they're still stuck living in this place and they've got no neighbours because it's a ghost estate. You know, like people are still living with these things and, and there is no easy way out for them. And then apart from that, there are people who are just changed by it, just the pain that everybody went through and the uncertainty. I mean, a lot of people have recovered. The Irish economy has turned around, but there were people who are left behind who just didn't have those options. And and it impacts them, it impacts their family, it impacts everyone. You know, I, I, I certainly see it when I go back still. Um, and I know that people are still feeling it, still living in it, you know. And it's only, I mean, it's, it's 11 years. So mm-hmm. to think about how, think about a question of reverberation through generations on my part is facetious. We've, we're not even a generation past this. What role then for art? Um, is it at the moment catharsis? Is it simply a reflection, a working through? I think it's catharsis, but I also think it's bringing it back and mm-hmm. saying, hang on a second, you know, hang on. The newspaper articles might be about this, economic whatever or that new tax bill or this new company that has x many jobs but can we just talk for a moment about the people who are still living in poverty about the number of homeless people we have in ireland right now it's just it's just a horrific situation and and talk about what people really need like i I sometimes feel like our media is very distractible by the latest very loud um event and that's because we are distractible you know we like to click on this stuff and we're just being fed what we like to click on but if we want the society we all want to live on, we live in, we have to talk about what's really happening and talk about what we want as a people. And sometimes I think in novels and stories, there's a place to explore that in a non-shouty way, in a non-finger-pointing way. You know, it's not about politics. It's not about parties. It's not about this, that or the other or old ideas. It's just about people. And if we can talk about people, then I think it brings the compassion back into it, you know, and the humanity into it, as you mentioned earlier. And then maybe we can start finding better solutions. That doesn't sound too worthy. I don't know, Andrew. No, I mean, but it also has huge potential to just scratch the scab off the horrid tragedy of it. I mean, it occurs as we're talking, I'm thinking more and more about the way you have have crafted the relationships between characters, names redacted. It's so hard not to spoil anything in this. But there is there is a huge tragedy in in choices that were made before the narrative of the scholar begins that mm. implicate people in in behaviours that they they probably wouldn't have taken otherwise except out of desperation, um, and that leads to to no satisfactory conclusion because mm. the the dead are still dead and yes. in a way their memory has been has been tarnished. Yes, yes. Oh, what was that? Yes, I mean, I think, I think sometimes there is just no happy, perfect answer, mm. you know, no wrapped up in a bow. And, and sometimes we have to confront the result of what we've done before we can move forward and do better, you know. Mm. Um, and sometimes the best people are the ones who are hurt. And occasionally narratives can be too tidy and that it's like, oh, well, you know, the, bad, the worst things happen to the bad people and the good people ultimately get to walk away. But that's not real life, unfortunately. We all know that. Sometimes the worst things happen to good people. 
So maybe that's that's why that is the way it is um, in the book. Although I don't mean to make it sound all sadness because it, it isn't really. But but I don't know. I just uh, maybe it is scratching the scab off it. But I feel that we need to pull back the veil a little bit sometimes too and see the reality of what we're living in. And, you know, I think that can be satisfying too for, mm-hmm. for us when we read because we know what the reality is because we're all living it. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like we're not talking about, like the conversation never comes around to what we're really all dealing with. And it's nice. Sometimes it's satisfying to get into that and see it, see it addressed maybe. I think you may have just answered my next question as well. <laughs> um, I thought just to... Because I, I can't, I can't go too much into the the plot of the scholar and of everything that we've said. There is still an absolute ripper mystery that you can really get into as you turn each page of the names redacted characters that we can't <laughs> we can't tell you too much about. So alone, that is a reason to read this. But I was oh, I was intrigued in the last couple of days. Um, an article that sort of brought together some recent research, including an Australia Council 2016 report that was entitled Reading the Reader. And one thing that that report found was that crime and mystery sort of thriller uh, that was the most popular category for readers. So you're a, you're a reader. You're mm-hmm. a fan. I, we talked off air about your Adrian McKinty, McKinty um, reference uh, yep. that you've dropped into the book. You obviously love the genre. You're also a writer of the genre. Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight into what we're what we get from these books, what we're searching for? And we've just gone into great length about that sort of catharsis and reflection. Well, I, I have two answers to this question. The first one I steal happily from Sophie Hanna, who wrote an article about it in The Guardian um, some time ago, around the time, I think it was the London Book Fair, something was on and it had been announced that crime had, had overtaken general fiction, if there's such a category, for the first time in popularity. It was, it was bigger in itself than all the others put together. And she said that she thinks it's because um, the reader can be confident that the writer would put the reader's enjoyment ahead of whatever the writer might be getting out of the process. Um, <laughs> like there will be a plot, you know, there will be excitement, there will be ca- uh, characters that you're interested in, it will move forward. So I think there might be a little bit of truth to that. But I think the other one is comes out of, um, when I was in the UK last year for Harrogate, I was staying in London and I got to go to the Old Bailey and have, and, and like observe um a high court criminal case and have lunch with the judges, which was a very interesting experience. But the sheriff of the high court in, in the old Bailey was there and he was telling us stories about the, the origin of the old Bailey in the very old days in the early 1800s and back when they were still hanging people there. And he said that the jailers used to sell little short stories, sort of tales of the people who had been hung, you know, how they went to their deaths and the crimes that they had committed. And these things were incredibly lurid and detailed and exaggerated and sometimes just completely made up. And apparently all of these tales were bound together and put in a book which was published and sold and was second only to the Bible in popularity in Britain back in those days. So I think crime fiction in some form or another has been popular as long as it has existed. Mm. And some part of us is just attracted to these extremes, you know, these extreme elements of our society, I guess. Mm. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's a fascinating story, too. <laughs> Why is everything? Why is everything always second only to the Bible in sales? I don't know. Why couldn't it have come in first, just for one? I mean, notoriously, that book is lacking a good mystery. Um, <laughs> a 
exactly. <laughs> you are tuned into to SCR 107.3 and I am speaking with Derivla McTiernan. We are discussing her latest Cormac Riley uh, mystery, The Scholar I. I haven't been able to tell you much, dear listener, about this because there are so many twists I didn't want to take anything away. Trust me, though, get out and and get into the mystery and perhaps some of the tragedy that we've just been speaking about. Derivla, thank you so much for taking the time out to share uh, share this and share Cormac with us. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. You're listening to Derivla McTiernan on the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. And before we say goodbye, here's a special peek at our off-air chat where Derivla gives a nod to fellow Irish-Australian crime writer, Adrian McGinty. I know you're not in exile in Australia, but there's just something about Irish writers doing street view of, yeah. of towns that they're not in. <laughs> that they left behind. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people... Um, look, I think people... When you're away, you look back and you see a country very differently, don't you? Mm. You know, it's it's just, I look back on Galway and the things that stand out for me that feel very Galway are things I might have taken for granted when I was living there. You know, I think living in Australia throws them into relief in a way. They stand mm. out for me a little bit more clearly. It's quite daunting, though. If I if I ever think about a story, like if a story idea pops into my head and I start to wonder where would it where would it sit... Um, Because, you know, some stories are going to be unique to a location. If I think about a story being a Sydney story, I then have to think, do I know the area that I I think it would sit well enough or do I kind of have to... Create confabulate something like maybe yeah. maybe create a street that can sit in between two streets, sort of like a yes. a platform nine and three quarters. I think you need to do that sometimes. I, I really do. I've just finished um I've just handed in the third book and that is in my head set somewhere very like Roundstone. Hmm. Um I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a beautiful village, um, really on the coast, further north from Galway on the coast. Hmm. And it's absolutely stunning. It used to be a fishing village, still is to some degree. But the roundstone of my head has convenient streets and distances that don't exist in reality. So probably before the book is published, I'll have to change the name. But in the manuscript, it's called roundstone. It's just a version of it, you know. Yeah. But like, who has a great line for that? Is it Ian Rankin? I think it might be. Or else it's Adrian McGinty. One or the other of them has this line about, you know, you know where you go to writing festivals and someone says to you, um, you know, Mr. McGinty, this this street that you've named, don't you realise that it's a one-way street or whatever, you know, some little detail. Mm. And he always says, actually, it might be Ian Rankin, thank you very much for that, you know, um, I think you're quite right. But my book is set in a fictional universe where everything is exactly the same, except for that street or whatever detail they've picked him up on, which I think is very clever. There has to be a bit of artistic license for these things, for e- sure. Exactly. That's that's why we have those clever physicists coming up with string theory, so that we can have <laughs> have those alternate universes. Yes, exactly. Um, I I have a ca- I have a very carefully laid out uh, interview plan here that includes loads of brilliant questions. But since you've already brought it up, I'm going to ask one that doesn't quite fit and I can edit it in later because okay. <laughs> I absolutely could not help but note the reference to your fellow Irish Antipodean author, Adrian McGinty, and, <laughs> yes. and, and the cold, cold ground. Um, I, yes. I love Adrian's work. I've spoken to him many times on the show. Was this just a simple nod to a fellow traveller or, or is there something like the, the threads that are there to be pulled within the tapestry of sort of both your depictions of Irish crime <laughs> fighting and also... Oh, that's such a great idea. Wouldn't I love to do that? That would be so clever. I, I think I, I was might have been reading it at the time, and I think it just felt like a book that Cormac would read, yeah. you know? 
And that it was as simple as that. And I'm a big fan of Adrian McGinty, which always helps. It's one of, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of him, but I just, I couldn't help but notice in your own separate ways and of course, um, insofar as they're, you know, they're drivable within a few, a few hours, sort of, you know, yes. four or five hours, you can drive just about anywhere in Ireland. Um, yep. But the the North and Galway are very, very different places and very, very different histories, even in a very short period. Yep. But there are still these threads of uh, corruption and politics and uh, virtue, even just within a very small constabulary in a in a particular sort of station. Yes. Were you, were you conscious of these parallels or is that just reality and you're just reflecting something of the reality? I think it's just reality. Mm. I really do. I think it's just reality. Uh, maybe it's reality everywhere to some degree. I sometimes look at some of the things that are going on in Australian politics and I think, oh God, no, it can't be the same. Mm. But I think there are some similarities. You know, power corrupts and um, and that's always been a feature of Irish society. I mean, when I was growing up, we used to kind of talk about it almost as if it was a kind of a post-colonial situation, particularly in, in the South, where I'm from, in the Republic. And, you know, we had been, you know, a, a colony for so many years, and the law was seen as this thing that came from outside the country and was imposed. Hmm. So if someone was getting around it in some clever way, you know, with a nod and a wink, they were kind of admired almost. You know, hmm. there was a sort of, a oh, good on you, you know, you did well with that one. And that carried on for a very long time until people started to realize how incredibly destructive it was. And how much, you know, the degree to which it was going on was so much worse than we ever understood. And I suspect, I mean, maybe for different reasons or maybe for similar reasons, it, it, it's been happening in the North, you know, or it had happened in the North for many years. Mm. And then you just... But I love Adrian's work because he has this broad, he has this streak of humour. I mean, he can be very funny in his writing in a way that I haven't quite managed yes but i'm hoping to i i i've tried to learn from the best so i'll i'll try and steal a bit from him too while i'm at it <laughs> and so then you've 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 up and left a republic for another colony um mm-hmm. that 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 has that same sort of cheeky regard for the the lovable rogue criminal i mean we we've made a bloody national icon out of someone named kelly um <laughs> <laughs> And we yes. we still quite like someone who can get gets around the law as long as they don't you know cause too much harm. Yeah, as long as it's not too much. Just, I mean, I, I like the irreverence. I really do. I just I don't like what it became in Ireland. You know, there was room in that room in that little that was like a the, the thin end edge of the wedge. You know, and there was room in that for certain people to broaden it to use for their own devices, and and they really did. You know, that there was always a workaround. And um, whether it was economic corruption, people, you know, passing the brown paper bag over so that they could have, you know, planning permission for this development or that development, or whether it was something much darker. Um, so I've kind of I've gone off it a little bit in more recent years when I've seen some of the results, you know. Mm, it's when, yeah, it's when the rogues become the establishment and then it... Yes, that, oh, that's a perfect line. Can I steal that for a title at some point? That's awesome. I'll tell when you the rogues what, become the establishment, that is exactly it. You you, you take it and I'll, uh, I'll take another interview for the book that it comes in. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> that's it for this great conversation with Derevna McTiernan. Derevna's latest thriller is The Scholar and it's out now through HarperCollins. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, even Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app too and you'll get a great new conversation every week. 
My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.